happening, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to episode eight of the Carbide Podcast with Greg Marrier. When I first got introduced to Greg as a longtime snowcross enthusiast, I was extremely interested in his time working with the Yamaha's factory program in the mid-2000s, as that stuff always seems to have been shrouded in secrecy. But the deeper I dove into Greg's background and his story, I quickly realized that this was just a tip of the iceberg for him, and he's got one hell of a career that we can talk about. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in, as always. My guest tonight, he's a longtime industry professional. He spent time with Polaris, Scorpion, and his longest tenure being in the snow division at Yamaha. This is Greg Marrier. How are we doing, Greg? Hey, Spencer. Glad to be here. Looking forward to, to going over some stuff. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, let's let's dive right into it because you got a pretty extensive resume here that we can that we can chat about. So I'll ask you the same question I ask everybody that comes on. What's your earliest memory of snowmobiling? Where did the where did the passion and the drive start for you? Well, we were uh, um, my family and my uh, uncle and dad had a feed mill and uh, had a lawn and garden store and we started selling Arctic cats in about 1964. And uh, that was kind of the the time the sport was really uh, new. Everybody was wondering what the what those machines were, um, and we were just uh, uh, just north of the Twin Cities area, still kind of a farming area back in in the '60s. Um, so lots of open land and, and lakes to go ride on, and uh, that's kind of where we started. Um, at that time. The, the sled sales for the different manufacturers were all through distributors. So uh, being a, a lawn and garden store, our distributor was selling Articats. Well, uh, that went for a while and then Articat went to Arctic Midwest and, and dropped the distributorship. So uh, that was with us. So then uh, my brother got a Rupp in 1967. I got a Rupp in 1969. So that was when I started riding um, my own sled at that time. And then in 1970, um, got a, a 634 Magnum and raced that, raced that through um, for three, four years as far as uh, uh, running up the uh, up to a Magnum 440 in 73 that I raced for a man. And I wasn't very competitive, but we were doing it just to promote the snowmobile uh, dealership. Uh, just local races, ASA races at the time, uh, ovals and cross countries, all, everything was on snow um, and local races. You could pick a race to go to uh, just basically any weekend uh, within 30 miles, there'd be a snowmobile race. And then on uh, during the week, on I think it was Wednesday nights, we'd have a, a race at a local track, uh, Stanky's uh, Cedar Raceway, where we'd go and race into the lights. So uh, that's kind of um, what what my background was. Um, so uh, another sled we sold was Chaparral and then Wheelhorse. So we went through uh, the different brands as a family um, as we were starting up through the mid-70s or so. That's, that's super cool. And I, I think a lot of my listeners might not go back that far, but, you know, during that time period, particularly Rupp and Chaparral, they built some fast sleds. So you guys were on some some pretty good equipment out there, weren't you? 
Yeah, that was fun. And, and there was a lot of brands. I mean, there was probably 120 different brands and they, um, new ones would come up. Uh, and then uh, where I grew up was right next to Forest Lake. Forest Lake had uh, Jeans Incorporated. They they were the U.S. distributors for Motoski. There was a snow jet distributor out of Alexandria. Um, there's uh, all these distributors, Larson Olson, they'd all have race teams. And then the dealers would have race race teams. So uh, there was a lot of, it wasn't just factory racing, but it was all this uh, grassroots distributors. Um, uh, Rupp had DDI, Jay Sperry Sr. was racing uh, with his team. And, and there was just a lot of excitement for, uh, for the competition events at the time, and inner brand and also uh, uh, among dealerships. So. so at this point in time, as you're getting into racing, really enjoying it, kind of pursuing it a little bit, it wasn't yet, I want to say like the, the, the career path to become a snowmobile racer, but did you were you kind of thinking that, like, I want to I wanna build a career in the power sports or the snowmobile industry somehow, or was it still just a super cool hobby for you? Well, I've always uh, had a mechanical aptitude with uh, small engines and, and uh, working on my sleds. And uh, I ran the parts department at the, at the family uh, feed mill store, the Hugo feed mill. And through that, I always had, uh, you know, some sales, some mechanical experience, but I knew I wanted to be a, uh, an engineer. So actually, um, on my senior year of graduation, I went right away into the University of Minnesota Institute of Technology that summer and took summer classes so that I could take winter off so that I could uh, race and work at the shop. Um, so that was kind of my, I did that for a couple of years and then uh, uh, had to catch up on all my classes and graduate in four years through that. So I went for a mechanical engineering degree in uh, uh, mechanical design plus uh, IC internal combustion engines were kind of my my main interests and specialties. So that was that was where where I got my education. And, and through that, I, I've met some people that had a connection at uh, Polaris. I knew some of the guys I, I uh, actually uh, interviewed over at Kawasaki when uh, they were in Shakopee. And that was a year left of my engineering degree. And I, you know, I wanted to take the job. And and uh, the the interview guy said, Hey, Greg, just get your degree and then come back. <laughs> so, so that was good advice from him. And then uh, I ended up uh, getting a job at Polaris up in Roseau, and uh, was hired by Chuck Baxter for he was a uh, uh, doing the sound uh, testing uh, engineering. That was my position uh, to, to do that uh, as we went from uh, this, the sound regulations were just getting tighter and tighter. And Polaris was in the middle of doing uh, their 1976 model new production that had to meet more rigorous sound. So that was my first project was to work on that with the guys at Polaris up in Roseau. It's funny. It, you know, you look back on that time period and it, I don't want to say it feels like the wild west in terms of, of engineering and development, because, you know, 
people were still cracking down on on regulations and compliance like that. But it is kind of funny to hear that even in the even in the seventies, people were cracking down on on sound of snowmobiles. It is it is pretty funny. Well, they were up until then in the sixties, you were running megaphones and and cut off exhausts, and the snowmobiles would drive by without uh, any uh, uh, electronic emissions. The TVs would go all squirrely and. And um, back then, you would go to a, a, a bar in, in Forest Lake, there'd be 120 snowmobiles sitting out there and they'd all ride on the lake. There was no place to ride except for on those lakes. Um, so it was it was crazy. I'm, I remember talking to a friend of mine that uh, his his folks had a, a, a um, cabin or a house on Forest Lake. And it was uh, after a while, they says, where did all the snowmobiles go? Well, it was, what happened is they started the trail system in the in the later 70s, and then they, they could all go out and ride on the trails, and they weren't all on the lakes irritating everybody. <laughs> so the, the start of the trail system really, really opened up um, the true growth of, of the snowmobile business and got them away from being an irritant to too many people. Of course, they had a lot of visibility, and it was a really a, Everybody was buying sleds back then. Um, you know, they were talking about selling, you know, 100,000, 200,000, 400,000 snowmobiles in the U.S. But uh, um, the regulations were coming in uh, to try to, to get them more socially responsible. Well, the, the trail riding and that side of the development ultimately funds the program and keeps the lights on but a huge part of polaris during that time period too was was racing as with any oem and this is this is like peak midnight blue express years a lot of iconic shots and iconic sleds did you get to do any work with the race team during that time there yeah i started in 1974 and uh at that time basically everything was done i was seat of the pants testing you might send somebody out to clutch a, the 1975 440 TX. Uh, they'd send a couple of the uh, testing guy or race guy with a radar gun, and they'd run it through a couple of tests and decide that's what they're going to build. Well, as you started to, to uh, add more sound control and and uh, um, jetting requirements, that just wasn't good enough. And, and when I started in 74, just about everything you worked on, you could make better because things were changing so fast. You know, the, the 73 racer would become the 75, you know, consumer um, lower end machine and the next racer would get built. So um, that was really the, the snow pro years. When I started, um, I was, I got to um, do a sound test machine that was called a real time analyzer. And that was a, a machine that you could use a microphone and record and it would in real time would tell you the RPM or excuse me, the frequency of the noise. Hmm. Well, I was doing a um, building up a test box so that we could check the exhaust noise in the dyno. And I was calibrating that. And the guys were out running out on the, on the dr grass drag strip in the back, you know, they were probably a quarter mile away, but I could see the, they were running open pipes and I could see the exhaust noise on my machine being picked up by the microphone. So I thought, this is in 1975, 76. <laughs> and I thought, man, I can tell how, how, what RPM they're running. 
So uh, through some calculation, I could uh, I, I could predict what they're running on the um, from the from the frequency analyzer. Well, I figured out the only way I could really know it would be as if they could carry a tape recorder on them and then go out and run and I could tell them the RPM. So um, when I told Bert Bassett and uh, uh, Larry Ruglin that I could, hey, I can tell you what RPM you guys are running. Oh, bullshit. They said, you know, it's not, you know, you can't do that. Well, I got a, a, a dictaphone, which was like an old, old style um, tape recorder. Had them uh, uh, record some engine dyno noise. And then I would tell them exactly what RPM it was from the dyno. And then they believed me. And once they once that happened, then we had basically da data uh, analy analytic information for the back in 1976 <laughs> that nobody else knew about and nobody else had. And because I knew what RPM they were, you didn't have to count on the on the driver to just take a glance at a tachometer sometime in the in the course of his his race. I could record it and see the engine RPM, you know, off the line going into the corner. After three laps, I could tell him what RPM it, it faded down to. These were free air engines, so all that stuff really helped us set the uh, clutching. So. Um, I still did all the uh, Dana or the sound control stuff, but a side gig was to go and help the the Snow Pro guys back in 1977, 75, 76, 77. Uh, and basically, when the Midnight Blue Express was, that was uh, Jerry Bunky, Steve Thorson, and Brad Hewlings was uh, in 77. So then I I worked with those guys. We'd actually take that machine on the uh, on the on the uh, semi truck and carry it carry it in a um, in a case and then I could uh, check the RPM at the racetrack and then um, Jimmy Headland would do the jetting he'd look at the piston wash and the spark plugs and and I would talk to the racer about how what do you think you know and I tell him well here's your RPM I'd tell Jimmy all well, this is this is what we think we can change for clutching. What do you think if we do, then he'd adjust jetting and the whole thing would work together. And that really, really helped uh, uh, bring that that uh, technology into the sport and really helped their clutching. So that was one of the ways I was involved with the with this uh, Midnight Blue Express guys. Oh, that's wild. That's just another prime example of of racing leading to improvement on the consumer side right like that's that's just such a pivotal part even to this day in product development on the snow side well yeah now data acquisition is i mean that's a go-to thing but back then nobody knew what it was <laughs> and and frankly once you knew what the rpms were really changing then you could actually do the clutching properly well when i knew their rpms we also had uh, i would take a box of clutch weights, measure all the thicknesses, measure all the weights, grind them all out, and I'd have a match set of weights that would go every probably two tenths of a gram. And then, you know, if the, if Brad Hewlings wanted wanted his sled a little bit heavier, then I'd give him two tenths of a gram because I knew what Brad meant when he said, "Hey, it's running a little heavy," and I'd read the RPM. Uh, with Steve Thorson, he was a lot easier to. He wasn't quite so fussy. His engines were a little bit less peaky. Um, 
and he would he would take probably a half a gram in order to adjust what he felt was was the deal but at the end of the day you'd still could throw a blanket over the three of them when it came to the finish line jerry steve and bradley were all you know one on top of each other winning a lot of races in 77. so in 78 you move over to the city of crosby minnesota to one of my favorite brands of all time which was scorpion and eventually hewlings and thorson would follow you there and, and race for scorpion as well but what kind of prompted your your move to leave polaris and go to scorpion well after the 78 se- uh the the 78 season went came to an end with with jerry's demise which was really tough on the team polaris um quit factory racing steven and d steven brad went to scorpion another uh i was already at polaris for five years i was supervisor of field testing i had also gone from sound testing and clutching to also do more like uh heat testing and and uh, field testing for carburation ride work and do all that kind of work so i had a, a pretty broad background on on what it was, but I was pretty much, that was as far as I was going to get for a while. Scorpion allowed me to, to move to a manager of testing, um, on a smaller group, obviously, but still a little more, uh, responsibility. So I, I went there and, and Steve and Brad actually had moved there before I went there. And, and, um, uh, when I got there, it was, uh, that I, I basically worked at in the, um, field test and new product development for Scorpion at the time. We were also working with IFS sleds on the cross country guys. Um, I lived with the, with the race team guys and we rented a, a house and had a great time. Um, it was kind of a, a great time to be involved on uh, working, you know, 70, 80, hundred hours a week, but uh, enjoyed the heck out of it as I do my regular job during the mornings or through the day. And then in the evenings, I'd go work on the race shop. So um, learned a lot about uh, um, clutching. They also worked with Ron Roach, who uh, at Scorpion uh, came out of Polaris and Articat. He did a lot of work with uh, ignition systems and, and exhaust systems, exhaust pipes, and uh, worked on how to get the, the, the Scorpion squadron uh, different than what Articat had because we were basically scorpion was owned by articat um with polaris gone articat wanted to have a, a more than just skidoo and, and articat and snow pro so they they started up the the scorpion squadron um that was uh uh we ran this this articat chassis with uh the suzuki engines and polaris drive and driven clutches so things that i knew that Brad knew and Steve knew, and uh, we worked on the uh, diff- the team had different exhaust systems set up, um, different uh, ignition systems for uh, basically the retardation or advanced advanced curve. Um, the goal there was to make sure that the exhaust pipe power peak was the same whether you had cold pipes or hot pipes, and that made your clutching a lot easier to do. We may have given up a couple horsepower on the dyno, but we could find the horsepower in the field. And that really, with the Polaris clutches, gave us an advantage on that year to start out with. And of course, Steve and Brad are, 
are two of the best racers out there. So uh, they obviously uh, had a lot had a lot of success in Scorpion. So that was a fun time. Yeah, for for anybody who's not following my uh, my Instagram page, I did just post a reel of of Thorson and Hewlings uh, for seventy nine. Um, some cool videos of that, but super cool, absolutely. It definitely sounds like though, Greg, despite all the all the talent, both in engineering and you know race team staff and all this that you guys had at Scorpion, it's still a much smaller operation than what you were coming from from Polaris, just from a resource standpoint. What were kind of some of the major differences you were facing coming from Polaris and then going into Scorpion? Um, I would say that the uh, um, there there was a smaller group of people, but um, we had a great stylist. Uh, John Lundberg was a stylist. Buzz Irvine was the manager of the uh, the engineering group. Um, we built our own engines, so. Uh, I had a lot more testing to do with durability testing on engines that I didn't really do at Polaris. Um, the the Articat I got, um, we were working on direct drive at the time. So I'd go up to Three Forever and, and work with the, uh, uh, they had a larger diameter driven clutch that we used for direct drive. So I got to work with the Articat guys. So um, even though it was a small group, um, it was still, not that much different than than Polaris at the time. Polaris was, you know, basically up in Roseau. That was it. Um, and Articat was up, the same up in Thief River. So there wasn't a lot of difference between the time back then in the 70s and, and late eight, or late 70s than it was um, than it is now with Polaris being so so large and and uh, so many different models and different brands and different different products so it was uh, pretty much the same so scorpions demise famously they're acquired by arctic enterprises which was articat prior to their filing for for bankruptcy so that's ultimately how how scorpion goes away that that time is is being owned by articat and articat going away but prior to cat's bankruptcy what was kind of the mood in Crosby? I mean, you guys were, you're winning races. The engineering is there. It seems like things are going well, but did you guys kind of have a feeling in the back of your mind that, Hey, this might be coming to an end pretty soon. Yeah. The, um, the addition of hiring uh, Steve and, and, and uh, Brad and myself. And a lot of that was, was driven by Articat as far as uh, ramping up the Scorpion group. But then, um the first year was really really you know gung-ho a lot of a lot of uh, uh pride obviously for the local area we had uh um cheerleaders at the races the the marketing people were going over the top as far as having the after race parties and stuff and it was it was a lot of fun but then uh um in 1980 um they cut back to just being Brad uh, racing. Steve Thorson went to race an Articat on on a Woody's team as an independent, and he did exceptional on that. But uh, um, at that time in 1980, the at the end of the season, everything was moving up to Thief River Falls, so it was moving out of Crosby. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, then you know, I knew I wasn't. Um, I had talked to uh articat and considered if i wanted to work up there 
but I also had looked around and, and actually had uh, uh, gotten a position at, at Yamaha in, in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, which was right by my hometown. So uh, I took that job um, at Yamaha. Um, we didn't know how Articat was going to go. I mean, it was still obviously a viable business at that time, but it was pulling back and the economy was, uh, was getting tough. Um, Articat went bankrupt, I think, uh, a couple of years after that. Polar, uh, excuse me, uh, Brad Hewlings moved up to for the uh, 1980 machine. Um, 1981, he raced out of Thief River with uh, Dave Karpik as his mechanic, raced out of the Articat uh, factory team. So, uh, so that was, that was, uh, let's see, was that 80, 81? That was his last year at Articat, and then they went, they went bankrupt that year. Yeah, that was a, that was a tough time period. And yeah, I studied a lot of, a lot of cat history over the years and, you know, they're, they're gone fishing years and things like that. So, you know, they ultimately oh, and, come. And Polaris was, Polaris was basically for sale too. Articat, or excuse me, Articat was on the ropes. Um, Scorpion was, was basically being absorbed by Articat, but then dropped. Polaris was, was uh, Textron wanted out on Polaris. They were trying to sell it to Bombardier, Skidoo, but uh, that didn't happen. And Polaris cut, or Textron cut a sweetheart deal to the Polaris um, uh, Inner Sanctum guys the, um, and sold them that uh, so they could keep it going. But they were on their, they were on shaky ground back then too. Everything was, the economy was really bad. That was during the oil embargo. And, mm -hmm. and uh, everything was, it was a tough time, economy-wise. That's the time period where you see basically all these major companies like the, the Mercury's and the Coleman's and all these, these companies that make sleds, but that's not the core of their business. You see them pull out during that time period. And then after the 80s into the 90s, that's when we're left with pretty much our, our core OEMs who are still in it for the long haul. Right. That was John Deere. Mercury, um, Kawasaki, like you said, uh, you know, Suzuki, or Suzuki had quit earlier, but yeah, it's basically the snowmobile industry went down, I think it was 80,000 units sold in, in the eighties. Well, I mean, that's nothing compared to when you think about 10 years ago, they were thinking it was going to be 400,000 units. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, it was a tough time. And of course, Articat got overextended with uh, boat companies and things like that. Now, the pr the pride that I have with the Articat guys is that they had to bring back Articat, Artco from, from nothing. They had to actually bid on buying uh, um, the the assembly line roller things in order to, mm -hmm. to, to actually keep that company going. Um, if, thank goodness that the paint, the paint uh, uh, machines were still in the Three River Falls office because if Polaris was looking to buy that, if they would have bought that, then Articat couldn't have came back, in my opinion. So it, those guys really, really worked hard to, to bring back Artico, and, and that's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. You look at their, when they ultimately come back for 84, it's basically the 81 sled, like, bare bones all the marketing material was in black and white it was a shoestring budget but 
the consumers were there in droves to to support cat coming back and that was you know the cat is back was their their marketing slogan yeah, at the time. Right. so that's and, a cool and, period of time and we were testing the scorpion versions of those machines when i was at scorpion in 80 so yeah i mean there were um yeah it was a it was a tough time in thief river and i'm glad that they they could come back so you mentioned earlier, Greg, in 1980, you you have a move to Yamaha, which at the time had an office here in Minnesota. Now a lot of their Midwest stuff's over in Wisconsin, but they were here in in Coon Rapids. Was the the move for you solely driven off kind of seeing the writing on the wall at Scorpion, or were there some other perks or some other um, advantages to coming and moving to Yamaha? Well, when we were at Scorpion in the last, you know few months they had a you know how you got a sheet of paper with everybody's uh phone number on it you know for their direct dial and i was just crossing off names as these people were getting laid off for for a month two months you know as we were as we were moving out of crosby and then uh um basically they cut a deal that since i had a project that that was going to get launched and i had to stay they basically cut me a deal where they paid me to some of the key people they'd pay to stay on till a certain date uh sometime in uh april or may and uh so then back then i knew i was going to be out of a job i uh interviewed uh um at yamaha uh through and and took that job and um i had already agreed to to start when i was going to start um then I already knew I was going to move, and by moving back to Yamaha, that's uh, that was actually at the Minnesota Dragways in Coon Rapids, and I and when I used to live up in Roseau and drive back home, I'd drive past Minnesota Dragways when it was the Yamaha facility, and I could hear them running the the mod engines with Franz Rosenquist and Ed Shabitsky, so I'd drive in there because the gate was open. I'd drive in there and and go peek at those guys running the running the race sleds back then so it was only about 20 miles from where i grew up so anyway i i started in in uh, snowmobile r d and new product R research and development it was called r d r d minnesota and uh, yamaha had a few uh they had r d california and r d minnesota that were in the us and they each uh focused on on different products um at that time R&D Minnesota worked on the ATV and uh, and we the the guys there I was pretty much always on snowmobiles but the the first uh, uh, the ATVs were were being built there prototype there the first uh, four-wheel drive ATV the first um, four-wheel ATV was developed by some of the guys there uh, first four-wheel drive the first ATV with a PTO that became the Terra Pro was developed there. Um, they developed side by sides that eventually became uh, like a Rhino or a um, like the Razor, you know, those kind of size machines. So there was a lot of interesting stuff that was getting getting produced there, and a small group of people, but it was uh, it was a fun group of people. A lot of a lot of interesting stuff. So we would basically. Um, design test and build uh prototypes that could be evaluated by product planning people out of japan 
out of Canada and US and Europe. And then that would help set the direction for the, the, next, uh, the next direction to put in the product plan. So during this time period, at least on the snow side, you know, phaser comes out in 84 is a home run for, for Yamaha. You kind of creep into the, the muscle sled years of the, of the early to mid nineties. You guys have the V max four, a lot of really cool sleds during that time period, but internally at Yamaha, what was the biggest push during your time in R and D both on the technology side, but also like just the product side of, of snowmobiles. Well, from, from my point of view or my, my, group of people that worked on stuff um, was we, we did uh, new new drive clutches, drive and driven clutches, new rear suspensions, long travel strut suspensions, long travel rear suspensions. Um, and along with uh, uh, some of the other guys, we're also working on snowmobiles on on things that did go you know fully into production. Um, we did uh, uh, the trailing arm rear suspension or front suspensions ifs's um we we did a one of my projects was uh uh taking a four stroke and um putting it into snowmobiles to see how it would work so we we uh we did one with struts one with trailing arms and some with a arms uh so different different groups of people would develop uh four strokes um mostly components and then we'd, we'd build about at least one project which would be a full sled and then maybe one or two different components so maybe a different uh front suspension in chassis layout i did one that was in the 90s that was a rider forward center uh lowering the moment of inertia um i did one of those uh machines that uh Never made it into production, but it was it did have some interesting uh, uh, advantages. Um, we would do uh, components that might be a, a, a drive clutch, for instance, or um, to check uh, a different uh, way to produce the sleds. That ended up in the production models at Yamaha. And uh, of course, everything that we did would have to go over to Japan and become fully um, tested, design tested, production tested. We only had to build one of a kind project to prove a concept. And yeah, it's, you know, you want to talk about Japanese quality standards versus North American quality standards as like, no matter how cool any prototype you would develop could be, you still got to send it over to Japan. And I'm sure there were some cool projects where they were like, nope, can't be done. Nope. Way too risky. Can't do it. Well, that would be that. But then also they had a group in Shabbat's that would built some pretty wild stuff too. So there were people that um, back in the, when the economy or in the mid eighties, Yamaha became number one in, in sales in the U.S. And it was pretty much taken on by Yamaha to grow the sport. Polaris was just kind of crawling back into business and uh, Articat was too, and becoming more and more, uh, sales numbers but yamaha with the phaser was number one but that's when we did the snow scoot was produced by a engineering group out of r d minnesota um the uh, we built uh, the inviter 
which was a, a like a cruiser type sled that was developed. Uh, the prototype was developed out of out of uh, R and D Minnesota, and then the engineer went over to Japan and took that into production. Um, the uh, uh, how to build the sport back up and be be entry level, trying to grow the sport was was our goal back in the uh, mid '80s to to the '90s, and then after that, um, then we started taking off after the the VMAX four performance image stuff. So the first idea was the phaser. We got to be number one. Find ways to grow the sport, expand the pie. Um, that didn't work as good as just building higher horsepower ones like Polaris with their triples in the in the uh, IFS stuff, Articat with the Wildcats and things. So then uh, we went after the performance image and and basically the VMAX four came out of a project in Japan that was basically two engines put together, something like they did on some of the motorcycles. So. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the VMAX four and it's it's still highly collectible to this day. I've I've tried to track one down, but the guys that have them are not ever gonna give them up. So but yeah, super cool. Yeah, to find one in good shape. Um the only thing I say is that the the best way to, to buy any brand, if you wanna uh go back to the iconic uh, models, is to buy the last year that they produced it. Because that's the one that has the best all the all the bugs are taken out of it. It's not rushed to production. They've been building it three three years or so, and it's the best example. For instance, the last Vmax four had had hydraulic brakes, long travel rear suspension. Um, you know, it's 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 a kind of a a muscle cruiser. Then you know, so it's not quite as fast as the ninety two or ninety three, but the clutching stuff was straightened out and. Uh, um, Every sled gets better on the last year it's produced. Well, moving on from that into the mid to late 90s, you kind of take over more on the long-term product planning for Yamaha. A lot more on the whole goods side, bigger picture, long-term scope, things like that. This is kind of, I would call it like second heyday of snowmobiling. The, the, you know, the market is not selling nearly as much as it did in the 70s, but it's kind of recovered from the downturn in the 80s. Costings back down, snow levels are still good. People are still riding and buying sleds. You know, what was kind of the bigger push during that time period for you guys? What are some of the obstacles you had? Maybe some of the challenges? What can you share during that time period? Well, we had built some really, really neat sleds, um, obviously, to get to get as the as the industry and the economy grew. But uh, one of the things that we were up against was the dollar yen changed, which is kind of a strange thing to talk about. But basically, back in the 80s, when we built the some of those sleds like the uh, um, the VMAX, the, the SRX or the VMAX 540 with the, it was a beautiful machine, but the, the yen was probably 300 yen to the dollar. When it got to be 2000, it was 100 yen to the dollar. So that really made it a lot tougher to build the things and have the business plan work out. So that was just some of our challenges at the time. Um, we, we basically worked on uh, pulling something to go from the struts to the 
uh, IFS models. That was the our plan there. And then uh, um, the the three cylinder with the Redhead uh, 700, which was the uh, VMAX 700 SX. And then we went to the SRX, which was the uh, um, triple triple. That one's an iconic machine right now. Uh, well respected and 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 uh, worked out to to build our performance image. Um, those kind of things was was how we were going. Um, after that, we worked on the, our R and D group was working on uh, A arms. Um, one of our engineers, who's now a big shot at Penske Racing, Ron Rosuski, he was uh, working on the A arm system, and uh, basically. The A-arm plan was to go with our four strokes. So he built a, uh, those guys in R&D built an a A-arm a machine with the SRX engine in it and then um, moved weight around to be able to find out how they could get the, they knew it was going to be heavier with the, with, the v, with the four stroke, but where do you put the weight and actually make it so that you don't feel it on the handlebars or feel it in the, in the moment of inertia? Uh, and the handling of it. And that was when they went to the rear exhaust, for instance. So those kind of things they had to, had to solve. Um, the drive for the four strokes at the time was basically EPA. There was uh, uh, about three or four different levels of, of emission controls that had to happen uh, to be able to sell sleds in the US uh, by EPA. Um, and eventually you could use uh, emission averaging, and then you had to meet a certain requirement for each model. And then eventually you had to meet a tighter model on the last one. From Yamaha's point of view, um, to meet that last regulation, you had to have four strokes. And of course, Articat was building four strokes with the uh, um, Yellowstone Special. Polaris had built a four stroke, but those machines were really, um, beginner or utility or low, low horsepower machines. Um, Yamaha's goal was to build a machine that had a performance image with four strokes. And that was what was driving us towards that, uh, um, the RX-1. And uh, there was still a lot of prototypes built, some in Japan, some in uh, Minnesota, some uh, through Europe and Canada. And there was a lot of uh, push and pull between each of the, th the four major markets on what was going to be the best four-stroke strategy. Um, there were uh, guys that wanted to have like a 900 twin and have it be able to be uh, a utility type machine. There were some that wanted to, to uh, um, build performance image. You know, there was a lot of back and forth and how to price it and what to do. But uh, once we decided on the, uh, RX-1, of course, we had to get buy-in from everybody, not only Yamaha in Japan, but also Yamaha Motor Canada and Yamaha Motor U uh, Europe and U.S. in order to go towards, towards that direction. So uh, once we decided on that direction, then, of course, engineering took over in Japan and, uh, and built the, the, the prototypes, and then they were tested through, through the U.S. and Canada and Europe. Uh, we'd have joint tests from everybody that would get together. A lot of it was done out of Manaqua or up in Alaska. 
um, to test how the progress was doing on the machine as it would come along. So internally at Yamaha, four stroke is already a you know hot button topic. It's dare I say tough to sell internally. The engineering is there, but it's still it's a it's a big project. It's a big task. But even in the market for consumers, you know, snowmobile riders are notoriously stubborn and we don't adapt to new technology very well. But in 01, you kind of move over to the marketing side of Yamaha and you're tasked with just that, telling these longtime little Yamaha guys like, hey, SRX is going away. Viper's kind of on the chopping block in the next couple of years. And we're we're all in on this four stroke technology with the RX-1. What are kind of, I mean, what are some of your bigger challenges that at that point in time, how did you kind of have to attack that situation? Well, you know, you got to realize that it's at least three years be between when the product plan is set before the introduction. So basically, we were also doing the uh, SX Viper that was styled out of California in the GKDI. And that had a lot of input from myself and Jim Kettinger and the guys from Canada would come over and we'd set the direction. So we, the the three cylinder um, SRX was also in the plan. So, but once I moved over to marketing, that was basically to start to put me in position to eventually sell the four stroke. Now, what the driving behind the four stroke was the EPA regulations, but EPA never put in the fourth level of regulation. So, if that fourth level would have been became law, there would have been a lot of people that would have had to build four strokes. But we had to, we wanted four strokes to not have an impression of being slow, but being performance. And I remember when we introduced the, uh, uh, the RX-1 to uh, our press guys up on the lake, up by uh, Buckskin Lake, up by Manaqua, CJ Ramstead said, man, I can't believe it looks like the highest performance snowmobile in 2003 is going to be a four stroke. And that's really the amount of level of engineering that it took in order to set that stage. So in marketing, um, we had to move it over from uh, trailing arm to a arm and also get a performance image. So in addition to um, being the, the, marketing guy I also worked with Gordy Metz on racing and myself then eventually started racing uh, the four strokes uh, in uh, we went over to the to the Sioux we went Myra racing in ovals because at that time we could race against the the triple triples with the with the uh, four stroke and we were very very competitive and uh, once we did that then that really and the RX-1 hit um, that made a big impact to the industry. Um, I remember one guy at, at that I knew at Polaris. He says when we first introduced the uh, the soundbite of the four stroke starting up with the, on our website, um, the guy at Polaris said every once in a while you'd sit in engineering and you hear somebody start that up on their speaker on the computer at Polaris. <laughs> so it made an impact across the whole industry. Oh man. Yeah. That's, it's such a cool story. And you know, the, the keyboard warriors continue, you know, to this day, they light up Yamaha of kind of the, the what ifs, if they kept 
building two strokes beyond like you know the the vk but kept building performance triples or even performance twins that were two strokes just kind of curious your thoughts greg beyond how cool the sleds are and all the engineering technology do you think yamaha's future in snow might have been slightly different if they were able to hang on to a little bit of the performance two-stroke side um i think the the biggest change was when when yamaha went performance with the triple triples those are expensive engines and they're also noisy and and big and bulky because you got to have triple pipes polaris came out with the twin from the motors from the personal watercraft and skidoo had the 670 twin and those twins were cheaper to build and you could get close to or as much performance out of them that because they were lighter but also they were um big bump sleds so you kind of went away from performance on top speed to performance as acceleration so um that that whole image was changing and it really was driven by cost polaris had a cheaper engine than their big triples polaris people love triples but eventually they love twins because that's what polaris built for them um in our case in yamaha we we had a um a heck of a the best lineup of triple triples in the industry either single pipe or the srx triple triple but we replaced it with the same performance with the rx1 but the real rx1 success to me came out of the warrior which was our second year machine the second year machine had a longer track and we could finally get enough traction to actually harness that horsepower that torque and of course, once the apex come out, that apex was was a heck of a heck of a sled, and that was uh, you know one of the basically really outdid the SRX or the performance triple triples or the 100, 150 horsepower class sleds at the time. Uh, the big twins couldn't couldn't handle it. Now um, the big the big change though was the start of snowcross and the fact that people wanted to go stand up big bump machines. The, the rev came out in 2003, the same year as the RX one, you could say both were, were, uh, very different sleds at the time, but the RX one was four stroke and the rev introduced the rider forward in production. And that was really what, what set the future direction for the next part of the industry. And they proved that through snowcross racing, hiring hiring Blair Morgan off of Articat and going to uh, to Skidoo, and uh, that was a heck of a move. They did a, a lot of neat stuff with that sled. Well, perfect segue, Greg, because I got a lot of snowcross guys that listen to this podcast. And in 2006, you took over as race manager for Yamaha, and. Up until this point, Yamaha had run factory teams in the past, various levels. Prior to that, we had seen them with with Titus and Chris Vincent on the factory level and, you know, really competitive. But at this point in time, you guys are kind of re-entering with the Nitro. It's not a purpose-built snowcross sled. It's heavy, but you kind of 
flip the switch and say, Hey, we gotta, we gotta try, we gotta be back in racing. But what was the internal push for Yamaha to get back in the sport? And then what were kind of maybe some of the uphill battles that you were facing besides just not having a purpose built snowcross sled? Well, what I did was after, after the, uh, um, I did marketing, uh, snowmobile marketing manager after we launched the four stroke line, but then in 2004 to 2007, I went back into product planning and that was really my goal there was to work with Japan, Europe, and Canada on how to develop a rough trail model lineup using four stroke. And, uh, that was when the phaser 500 came out. That was the nitro, which was, was basically, a a machine that you could put together an image machine with rider forward with cha changing the seat going with aggressive color and graphics higher bars that kind of stuff and then um, the emphasis there was the the uh, new phaser which was a completely different concept using a two, 250 cc um, motocross four-stroke engines put together to be a 500 cc twin um, and be a rough trail or uh, um, I'll call it a, a big bump sled. We used uh, Jimmy Blaze to promote that also uh, in the freestyle riding. Mm -hmm. And then that was the start of the nitro, the FX nitro. So uh, once we introduced the, um, the FX nitro plan, we, they were building some of the prototypes out of R&D Monaqua uh, to, to see what it would take, see if they could use the, the FX Nitro plant, uh, layout and put a big three-cylinder engine in it and things like that. Um, and once that was set up on which way we were going to go, then I moved into racing. So 2006 to 2009, I went into racing to, to, uh, with our goal was to compete in four-stroke and snowcross. Well, our first big thing was we knew the machine was coming out and I knew the specs on the machine and I'd seen the machine in clay and uh, that kind of stuff, but I had to get buy-in from the rest of the manufacturers to allow four strokes to race against their open class two strokes. So I had to negotiate through ISR and Polaris and Skidoo and, and Articat and basically lay out what we were going to do, what we weren't going to do, so that they could feel that it would be competitive from a horsepower point of view. We knew we, um, and they realized we'd have probably have a chance to make more horsepower than them, but they also knew that we would weigh more than them. And that's just a fact of four stroke versus two stroke. But uh, with open class, we could uh, um, build a lot of uh, um, special machines in, in use that to develop the nitro. But the first year that we produced the, we went into racing in snowcross was to use the nitro stock chassis. That was going to be the production. We used pre-production sleds, um, 1050cc engines and met the regs on, on carburetor or ignition or, um, ignition size, or excuse me, carburetion size, um, number of valves, size of valves, things like that that they, the manufacturers agreed to that we could race against them. And then we, we, uh, we went out and introduced that. Uh, the first race was at Brainerd. Uh, we had 
We had uh, hooked up with uh, Boss Racing. He had Robbie Malinowski. That was the guy that we wanted to, to ride with. We had Yuji Nakazawa that also raced for us out of Japan. And uh, prior to that, Yamaha had also been racing snowcross with different four-stroke machines um, in their Japan circuit. So they also had experience on what it would take for that, and that helped develop the, the nitro direction. So we went and started racing, um, and our goal was to obviously improve our performance image, and we would take customers' industry surveys across all brands um, each year with similar same questions in them when we could track our progress. So as we went from four-stroke with the RX-1, the uh, uh, RX-1 oval racing, the Apex oval racing, the, the uh, um, speed runs, we were running, uh, uh, setting 140 miles an hour on a drag strip with the four-stroke. We were doing uh, freestyle uh, machines with Jimmy Blaze with a four-stroke. We, then we went snowcross racing. We could track our performance image that went from number four out of four to number two out of four in about three, four years. So we were making great progress on increasing Yamaha's performance image using racing, um, and it was tracked across the across the industry. Uh, when we went to the to the uh, um, snowcross races, we didn't just go there to race, but we also had a, a a customer experience where the you could come in and engage the customer. We had uh, a bunny from our uh, uh, um, videos that were in our Johnny Skeptical videos that she would be there and and uh, they would take pictures on a four-stroke sled and and engage the customer at the races. That was something that the other brands weren't really doing, but it was really increasing our our experience with our customers all customers when we're at the racetracks. So it was more of a, a total, not just build something, have somebody to win, and then sit back and and do victory ads. We would do, uh, you know, promote the sled, promote the image, promote the um, product across not only advertising, but our videos and our uh, um, uh, customer engagement at the races, that whole, uh, experience like we would do in motorcycles or other products. So we did uh, really increase our uh, performance image um, once we once we got into the into that uh, uh, nitro program. So after the first year, we raced the nitro chassis. Um, we worked with uh, uh, performance shops to uh, to build it up, do the modifications that we had to do. Um, and then uh, the final year for me in 2009, we were working out of uh, uh, Randy Karpik was who just got inducted into the Snowmobile Hall of Fame, was our uh, our crew chief and built the sleds up at uh, Fast with uh, Gerard Karpik, and uh, that sled was a that was a heck of a sled. It had a six port induction, a fuel injection. It had uh, titanium in the engine uh, uh, rods. It had um, a completely new chassis uh, trick. That was a that was a heck of a sled. So we did uh, move forward as we went through and improved the sled. But uh, once 2009 hit, then the the uh, economy took a took a dive. We were spending you know quite a bit of money on racing, 
and we had to pull back. And uh, that was basically when I retired from from Yamaha. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, because I was I was going to ask about that because, you know, Robbie famously scores Yamaha's only victory at Brainerd in 07. You you still ask Robbie. It's still something that he's extremely proud of. And then you guys move over to Andre Lorraine in the OTSFF team. Ian Hayden, Steve Taylor, still super fast guys. But the success is not in that three-year period. That that win with Robbie is, is definitely kind of the peak. You still make the gains. You still get the exposure. But it's not, you know, championship level competing at that point in time. But then Yamaha kind of just pulls out at that point in time, like after that short period. And Well, that was the end of the, of the factory mods in Snowcross. So we couldn't race a, a stock, you know, a stock sled. We didn't build a snowcross specific race sled like everybody else. So once they went to a stock based snowcross sled, I mean, some of the guys tried it after I left, tried to race it with Steve Taylor um, with the Articat chassis, but they, they just, uh, it's not competitive. Mm-hmm. So once we, um, once the, the mod sleds quit, there was no opportunity for Yamaha to be competitive, in my opinion, in the unless we built a specific sled. But then um, that was something that we just couldn't afford to do. So I would imagine then there was some kind of appeal from you guys, both to ISR and the other OEMs, like, hey, this new rule is literally going to pull us out of the sport. Like, can we reconsider? Well, back then the sport was also in trouble. That was a tough time, 2009. The economy was junk again. And uh, the race teams were looking at how, how they can control their budgets. And they wanted to they wanted to go stock racing, the manufacturers. And, um, you know, who was I to stand in their way when it's three of them and, and they're the ones that are carrying all the weight. And if that's what it takes to save the sport, from a budget point of view, you know, you can say, okay, the customer doesn't like it. But the fact is, if the factories can't afford it, the customer isn't going to be able to see the show. So that that goal to, to go stock racing was driven by the manufacturers in order to stay in the business. I just, uh, I want to emphasize that for the keyboard warriors who incessantly complain that they got rid of mod sleds in snowcross five years ago that ultimately to keep the sport cheaper and to keep everybody involved there is value and it can be driven by the oems it doesn't have to just be driven by teams so i just it's it's an important call out that i really think people need to consider is the oems need to be healthy in the sport in order for it to thrive it's not completely about the consumer image and how much we love watching mod sleds. Oh yeah. And the race teams, I mean, I know Steve Thorson and he works for shearing. He loved the snowcross mods because he could actually make it, make a new suspension, build a difference. And those guys love that the race teams do, but in order to, you know, in order for that to happen across all the, all the semis that are in the trick that are in the in the pits, that's hard to do for everybody. Um, that was driven by the manufacturers, in my opinion. So 
it was a really important time for Yamaha. Like I said, you guys did have success on the track and it was, it was a cool time period because you had all the OEMs playing in, in racing. And it was, you know, hadn't seen that for a while. We still haven't seen it since, but it was really cool. I'm sure you got a lot that you're proud of during that time period, but are there any, any regrets or any, any misses, any what ifs during your time period well, as yeah, race I manager? Think, I think, um, I wish that we could have had Robbie on that last sled we built. I think um, there was only, I mean, back then, there, you know, the, the rider was, is a key part of it. We, and Ian, Ian podiumed on that. Steve Taylor was fast. Um, you know, we, we had, uh, um, you know, we put on a good show, but uh, in order to beat Tucker Hibbert, it takes a heck of a, a heck of a, a rider too. So, um, and it's still like that today now where there seems to be one, one guy that rises to the top and he's the person to beat, whether it's uh, Morgan or Tucker or whatever. It's uh, um, Snowcross is a lot of the rider much more than uh, necessarily the, the uh, machine. Uh, the machine is important, but uh, you know, you can tell you, everybody now with stock machines have have pretty much the same sled, and uh, still the best guy wins by quite a bit. So, it's, it's the the rider makes a big difference. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Like I said, it's when you when you dig deeper into the story of Yamaha being in and out of of snowcross and competitive snowmobile racing. If you really dig deep into it. There's a lot of logic there. It makes a lot of sense. It's just, you know, from the consumer side, when you don't have that information, it's just, it's annoying and it bugs us. Like, oh, that the, they were so good. Like there was so much there, and you know, it's so it's, it's it's good to hear the story and the the background of how you guys got into it and ultimately what happened to to pull you away. Well, and also after I left um, Polaris, or excuse me, Yamaha in 2009, I mean, still. The guys did race. I mean, they went hill climbing. They went uh, cross country racing. They went to the Sioux, and they still competed. So it's not like they just didn't go snowcross racing. So Yamaha still. I mean, the guys at at uh, Yamaha US still had a, a passion to go racing. So they did go racing, uh, and uh, it's just that they didn't go factory snowcross open mod racing because that wasn't available anymore. So we'll kind of wrap it up for you, Greg. There's been a lot sure. of a lot of really cool things here. And frankly, I probably talked to you for hours, but my uh, my engagement on the pod would drop significantly. So I got to be conscious <laughs> of that. But a um, couple final questions here for you. And I know this one's loaded. I'm sure you could talk a long time on this one. But general thoughts for you on Yamaha ultimately leaving the snowmobile industry after model year 25. Well, I mean, I'm really obviously sad to see it go. I I know a lot of a lot of the guys that I um, through the almost 30 years that I worked for Yamaha. Um, they're all retiring now and stuff, but uh, there's just some super dedicated people all the way from from the president of uh, the the CEO of Yamaha came out of the snowmobile group uh, at Corp, you know, in Japan and. Uh, guys on the board of directors worked on snowmobiles in the 70s so it's it's uh it's also was very very important to the 
to the people up in Canada to keep another uh, product line in the wintertime. Those guys worked hard to keep the snowmobile business going. Um, they had a really good uh, uh, run on it. We uh, worked on a lot of neat stuff and expanded the industry in a lot of new ways. But uh, um, the industry right now, a total worldwide industry is not big enough for, for four manufacturers anymore. And once we, uh, you know, I think that Articat and Yamaha did a great job working together. And I personally love that SRX engine, uh, the triple, uh, or excuse me, the, the turbo. Um, that is a heck of a sled. Um, it's a beauty, the Thundercat uh, SRX. And that machine was developed jointly through Articat and obviously Yamaha on the engine side and the clutching when it comes to Yamaha. So they had a really good uh, uh, run there. But once Yamaha lost control of the production, then it, you're basically a distributor for Articat models. Yamaha through Monaco did make their, put their stamp on it, but it wasn't enough to, to uh, create the profit cycle that it takes to stay in business with the units that they're there. <clears throat> so between uh, um, delivery through COVID and all that problems, we just couldn't keep our dealers going good enough, our customers good enough. So um, they've, they've decided to exit. I do have to give them props though, that they're the, they're pretty classy on the way they're doing it. They're telling people what's going on that the 2024 is going to be the, the the uh the season you know the um not like you know mercury or kawasaki or john deere where they basically tell the people okay that's it done bang so uh there's a chance for our dealers to react our customers to react and um you know bow out of it uh bow out of the industry it's not a it's a sad thing for me obviously being so much involved but uh it's also a business. So unfortunately that's, that's the way it happened. If you, uh, if for people listening, if you recall earlier, Greg said, uh, if you're looking for a collectible sled, always buy the last year, I encourage anybody because I, I considered it, my wife put a stop to it, but snow checking like a SRX next year, because that's going to be an incredibly important time capsule moving forward. So um, it's not going to change Yamaha's mind, but it'd be really cool for anybody to be who's looking at a slide or considering a new slide in the co next couple of years. Players will be fine. BRP will be fine. Cat will be fine. But it'll be really cool if we could if we could sell some Yamahas. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, I think they'll be hard to get. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So cool. Yeah, well, I mean, last one here for you, Greg. I mean, you you have a long history in the snowmobile industry, but I mean, what are you up to these days? Are are you still involved, or where are you at? Well, I um, yes, I am still involved. I I'm on the on my second uh, run at the board of directors at the Snowmobile Hall of Fame in Saint Germain. That's a great group of people that are really dedicated to the sport and have a fantastic uh, uh, museum and stop at the in St. Germain. If anybody gets to the North Woods, you got to go and check that place out. Um, the other things I'm enjoying doing is, uh, is I write um, 
what I call inside the hall, man and machine of uh, articles in Snowtech, where I interview uh, racers like uh, uh, um, Brad Hewlings or Mike Trapp or Bobby Donahue, Tim Bender, um, those guys, Gerard Karpik. Um, next one coming out is going to be Doug, Doug Hayes. So uh, those are fun to write up those and interview those guys and kind of go over the 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 years that uh, oval racing was was really really hot stuff. Yeah, that's, so I'm enjoying life. That's super cool. That's that's a big part of my about kind of the goal with with this podcast too. Is there's a lot of fast guys and a lot of cool industry people over the years that many people don't know or they don't know the story and. 20 or 30 years from now when when some of those guys may pass away or are not interested in talking about their stories anymore at least there's some kind of media where people can still learn the history and and learn about it so i i have yeah, mad respect for you keeping that alive for sure well i appreciate the the chance to to uh to talk about some of this stuff but you know you got to realize this was 45 years ago when the, some of the stuff was happening so uh, sometimes the memories are, are uh, fading away, so it's great to have them down on uh, digital digital uh, capture. So appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks again for the time. I really appreciate it. I think a lot of listeners are really going to enjoy this. Uh, shout out to our mutual friend, Adam Sylvester, for putting yep. the, the connection together. I don't want to give Adam any more credit than he needs, but I kind of have to, so. Um, thanks Adam. And, and yeah, this is, this will be really cool. So Greg, I really, I really appreciate the time. Appreciate it, Spencer. Good luck. Greg Marrier on the carbide podcast. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a sucker for behind the scenes stories on sled development and race teams. Greg just happened to give me the best of both worlds. One important point that I think could be taken away from this interview is that behind all the major decisions made by OEMs, whether you agree with them or not, are just people. People who are passionate about the sport and want to see it succeed. Whether it's an engineer making your stock exhaust quieter, or a race director making a pitch to remove components from competition, everybody is trying to make the sport better and succeed in the long term. Never forget that. Thanks again to Greg for the awesome discussion. These are the types of stories I want my podcast to be known for, so I look forward to sharing more content like this in the future. Thanks to everyone who's still listening. Your support means the world. Be sure to subscribe, follow us on Instagram for cool photos and videos, and as always, take care. <laughs>